Hello and welcome to Play, Train, Grow, a podcast that asks what is life really like chasing the dream of becoming a professional footballer. In this episode, I get to sit down and talk to Dr. Robert Morris of Stirling University. I'd really like to thank everyone that's listened. I'm really looking forward to receiving some feedback. So some tweets, some retweets on Twitter would be great. I'm on at Play, Train, Grow. My email is playtraingrow at gmail.com. If anyone has any ideas or thoughts or feedback from what they've heard, I'd love to hear it. Really hope to build a community around this. Really hope we're opening up and explaining a little bit more what the journey to that first team is really like and what the individuals go through who chase the dream of becoming a professional footballer. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy. really excited and, and genuinely really thankful to welcome Dr. Robert Morris to the podcast. Robert is a lecturer at Stirling Uni in sports psychology and he is also the chair of the British Psychological Society's Division for Sport and Exercise. Robert, thank you for coming on. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. Excellent. So if you could just um, sort of give a, an intro on your own, you know, what do you do? What areas do you work in? Yeah, so... My, my background, obviously, sports psychology. Um, I teach at the University of Stirling on mainly our master's in sports psychology programme um, and I also work as a, an applied practitioner. Um, so I deliver sports psychology across football, rugby, cricket, golf, um, canoe. Um, so a variety of different uh, experiences and, and different people that I work with through those those roles, um, young athletes, older athletes, um, and really my, my interest in uh, area of expertise is around youth development. Um, so a lot of my research work is about how do we support young athletes to become elite? How do we support young athletes who get released from contracts at age of 17, 18, when for a long time their experience has been building up to potentially getting a senior contract. So those are really my, my areas of interest and expertise. Love it. And where did the, the passion come from for you to, to jump into this area? Was it something you, you watched from afar and thought, let's get involved? Or, or how did it come about? Yeah, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I mean, I played a lot of sport when I was younger, um, at a reasonable level, kind of golf, badminton, uh, but never really became successful in a lot of ways. I never, was never able to really push through into any sort of high-performing environments. Um, and I always was was a bit frustrated by some of that. And I wanted to understand a bit more about why, why do some people make it? Why do some people not make it? And I think that those questions are a lot more complex than, than I will ever be able to understand. But my, my passion really came from then looking at and observing other athletes and the way that they're developing and looking at environments and thinking, this doesn't sit right with me. That ethically, morally, the way we're treating young people as, as those commodities is, is really difficult for me. And I, I don't think that's universal. I think there's, there's some good practice goes on for sure. But that, that was really uncomfortable for me. And, and I think my passion came from wanting to help people, wanting to help those young athletes to be successful, um, whether that was within the sport or, or external to that. Yeah, so what's the best thing about your job when you're talking about all these areas that you're trying to help and all the areas you work in? What's the best thing about it? 
I think, I think when you see athletes, um, coaches who, who who develop in the way they want to, so if they've come out of a session and gone, yeah, you know what, I get that, I understand that, it makes a lot of sense to me, um, or they come back to you six months down the line and go, I, I really understand where we're going now, um, and it makes a lot of sense that we're talking about identity as a construct, or we're talking about um, how I can improve myself outside of my sport, all those kind of things that I think when an athlete understands some of those elements and, and can see the progr- the progress that they've made, I think that that's probably the best part for me. And, and do you do you come across like stereotypes or myths that you quite kind of get uh, confronted with regularly, or do you find that the role of the sports psychologist is becoming more more understood? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it is certainly becoming more understood. I think one of the challenges is still the perception that a sports psychologist is there to deal with problems rather than be proactive in, in the way that the support provided. Um, and I think that stems from the clinical model of, of psychology, which is where sports psychology really came out of. Um, <clears throat> the sports psychology as a discipline is, is relatively new. Um, and certainly the, the the idea that going to see a psychologist is, is something that 15, 20 years ago probably wouldn't even have been in an athlete's mind. Um, when it first came in, it's like a lot of the athletes were probably seen as dealing with issues, so dealing with anxiety, dealing with stress, dealing with difficulties, rather than seeing it as a positive aspect that guys can help uh, development and performance. So I think that as a as a myth, as a challenge for for us to to embed ourselves within organisations is probably still there. I think it's certainly improved, but. I think it is still there in some respects. So what do you do then on a, a sort of daily basis when working with athletes? What areas do you work on? Um, is it something that you'll go in and go, let's work on this, or do you let it be athlete-led? Yeah, so th- this will really vary between um, practitioners and, and the different ways that they work. But my my approach is really to be led by what the athlete is interested in, what they want to develop what they want to progress and that that can lead me down so many different avenues and paths um, because it might be that some want to talk about their private life they want to talk about their relationship with partners they want to talk about the, their children and how to support them uh, and some of them might want to talk about sport so it really for me opens up a whole host of different paths that we can maybe go down um, but Ultimately, my role, and I see my role as being facilitative of the athletes I'm working with, and it's helping them to perform well, whether that's within the sport or or outside of the sport, develop and progress as as a human. Um, And ultimately, whether they perform well or not will partly be dependent on what happens in their private life. So if if they have challenges and difficulties within that, aspect um it may then fester um and, and come into the sporting environment as well so i think for me it's, it's been driven by what the athlete wants to to discuss and what the coach wants to discuss and what other staff want to discuss as well and when you're 
when you're in this, you're, what I'm hearing is it's the kind of like you'll focus on the whole athlete. So it's sorry, you'll focus on the whole person opposed to the whole athlete. Is that a, a reasonably easy thing to come from that? Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. But that will vary depending on the, the psychologist. Um, some some will focus more on the performance aspects as an athlete, um, and they'll, they'll maybe not discuss many of the, the stuff that external. So that's the the private life, the holistic person, um, and and that really is what what people are most comfortable with. Um, I don't think it matters either way, um, as, as long as people are aware of what the, the service is that's being delivered. Excellent. Right, so we're going to delve into the sort of football part soon, but what I want to do is maybe just throw some terms at you and just get your sort of thoughts of what pops off your head. So I'd like to start with like mindset and grit. What comes to mind if you're working with an athlete or if a coach says to you, look, what do we do about mindset and, and grit? Yeah, so so for me, um, I mean, these terms really are embedded in the idea that we can recover really well from setbacks we can um we're able to overcome difficulties that we might be facing within the sport within the organization we have a positive mindset i.e we're we're not always going to be negative to, to the environment and the situation we're in we're, we want to be to be positive about about that as well um but there's something in grit that talks about adversity to me and this idea of being able to overcome whether it's defeats whether it's injuries, um, whether it's other challenges outside of the sport and and then overcome that and, and perform well subsequent to that. Um, I mean, if you've got an environment which is has a positive mindset and has grit as a, as a key component embedded within it, what, what you can get is a, a real positive out, outlook for the whole squad, but it's also then an ability of, of a squad to, to bounce back from defeats, challenges that they might be experienced as well. So when you're talking about adversities and bouncing back, is that in terms of reframing the information they see, maybe reframing performance? Yeah, potentially. Um, I think it's partly to do with the, the, the reframing. I think it's also been able to appreciate that when we do have adversity, it's not always a negative thing as well. Um, that actually, we can learn from the adversity that we're going through. We can overcome the, um, the the difficulties and it can help us to to move forward and deal with those adversities again if they come up. So, so if we're losing, um, if we lose a cup final or if we lose a couple of cup finals in a row, still having the ability to then come back and, and acknowledge that, okay, we, we lost that because of these reasons, we will maybe need to, to adjust to the way we work moving forward. But Ultimately, we, we know we've got the determination and we've got the ability to bounce back as a squad. So can, can you link that to maybe um, comfort zones and making mistakes and redefining failure then? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, it, comfort zones and, and the idea of being in a comfort zone, it, it suggests to me that you're not, being able, you're not pushing yourself outside your, your boundary um, of competence and you're when you sit in a comfort zone, it's it's not pushing that extra step, which is maybe the extra one percent that you, that you need um, to to really break through the, the the barriers and through the boundaries. And when we talk about elite sport, 
um, at the very highest level, it is one percent differences that make a huge uh, a huge difference in outcome. <clears throat> and I think you see that with with a lot of sports that as soon as you have um, an ability. The, 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 the next part is the psychology of it. It's pushing yourself outside the comfort zone on a regular basis, knowing that you're pushing yourself probably to your limits in a lot of ways, um, but but knowing that there's a benefit of doing that um, as well. So, I mean, absolutely, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone is, is, is huge in that respect. How do you go about rewarding people when they do that? Because for me, it's about... You've got to reward when it burns or, or go to when you know if the lungs are burning you've got to go to where it hurts but instead of taking that as a negative you have to try and switch it and go embrace it enjoy it love the messy middle so how would you go about that yeah i mean i think that there's a couple of ways you, you can obviously have um things like competitions that, that people are um judged upon so so maybe things like you you're your coaches are responsible for for paying for dinner at the end of the session, or or something like that. When it, so you've got very uh, sort of external rewards, but you can equally have internal rewards um, related to to the athletes and how they're feeling and talking about their emotions and how actually when you push yourself to that boundary, you get the the exercise high that we all talk about and and some of those elements as well. So I think it's related to rewards absolutely, um, but. I think there's there's also an internal sort of element to that that when you go to these places you come out of them and you feel oh, I've worked hard here and I feel feel good for it um, as well. One that always hits me on this sort of area is, is I remember listening to Sir Chris Boy and he talked about his one of his biggest training sessions he felt like his heart was going to explode he was just working so hard and I've always wondered you know how do you take the the positive out of that that you've you've gone to such an extreme. But at the elite level, it, it just seems superhuman to me. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think elite athletes enjoy that, though. I think they, they're wired in such a way that those types of things, they don't see it as a negative, they see it as a positive, they see it as this is going to help me get the reward at the end, uh, which might be the Olympic gold medal. And and it's not they're seeing it as pain at this particular moment in time. Of course they are. But what they're seeing is the the end goal, the end reward. That if they work hard at this moment in time, it'll have an impact six months a year down the line. Yeah, that focus is important, isn't it? That it, they're probably taking step by step. And I think sometimes we can jump too far to the end goal before we've we've sort of worked our way to the process, and then we can lose motivation and and desire and even effort and training when it when it comes to that too. Can I, can I link that in now because we're going down this path where you saw like resilience and mental toughness. They're words that are always thrown out there. So what, what do you think on when you hear these words? Is it something where you go, oh, no, I need to explain a bit more or is it something you enjoy working on? Yeah, I mean, it's something I enjoy working on because I think the the idea of, of resilience um, it is that it is developmental. It's something that we can change either at an environmental level or at a, at a very sort of local level. And it's partly about the idea of, of pressure and putting people under pressure versus um, their the ability or their perceived ability to, to manage that. And putting people out of their comfort zones um, to, to some extent is, is related to that. The more you put people out of their comfort zones, the more they develop that resilience. They know they've been there before 
and they're able to then keep progressing. And and you can then add more to that. You can add more challenge to it. You can add more um, stress to, to those individual athletes. And they kind of keep learning how to, to manage that. And, and gradually over time, that has an impact. It may only be 1% um, at this moment in time, but over five, six, seven years, it may be 8% or 9%. Um, and, and that putting people through what we just talked about, outside their comfort zones, through grit, through determination, um, through resilience, I think it can really expand the, the repertoire the athlete has to cope. When you're, when you're pushing people and you're, you're trying to maximise them or maximise their potential under pressure, do you ever see the athletes realising they're dealing with it or is it just a process that happens and there's not much recognition of it? Yeah, I think there's, there's probably both sides to that. I mean, some some athletes will be very cognizant that that's what's happening. Um, I think some athletes don't really have that awareness, but not through any fault of their own. I think it's more um, they're quite happy to allow the process to happen underneath them um, and, and trust in their coaches and sports science support staff that that's what's going on. Um, I think for the, the athletes that have got a bit more awareness of, of what's going on, they're probably likely to to consider how they can improve it themselves as well um, in, in ways that they can develop their own uh, sort of skills um, alongside what we're, what we're talking about. So when, you're, when you're developing skills, now, what work do you do on emotions? Is it another area that you cover? Because folk think emotions as a negative, but... But really, you need them both to, you need to take, and you need both negative and positive. So how do you work with emotions and explaining them to athletes? Yeah, so so there's a couple of parts for me about emotions. The first one is athletes understanding their emotions and understanding why they've reacted in, in a particular way. So if they're really emotional and they get sent off, as an example, um, it's, it's then sort of talking them through that situation going, okay, why did you react in that way at this particular moment in time? What was... What was your thought process? What were the the behaviours that were emanating? Where did they come from? Um, which goes back to if you've got a really emotional attachment to something, you set it off in a cup final or, or something like that. It's of course it's going to be emotional, um, and there's an acknowledgement of that that actually, don't you know what emotions aren't a bad thing necessarily. Um, when you're in those situations and your behaviours are perceived to be coming across it as bad, it, it's probably because of how emotionally attached you are. I think the, the key thing is how you can manage them. Um, and, and it might be that you that you can teach people how to, to control them or reflect back upon previous times where they've had challenge in, in the same way or had, had highly emotional situations that they've been able to overcome. Uh, how did you overcome it? What did you do? But I think one of the key things for emotions is the reason people get emotional is because they care. They care about the situation they're in and, and they care about what they're doing at that particular moment in time. And, and even selling that to people and, and say, saying, look, the reason you got emotional is because you care about what happened or what's happening at that particular period of time is, is really important. Do you find that there's a certain age group or an age where where people kind of get to and then it's slightly easier for them to to manage their emotions? I think it really varies um, quite significantly depending on development, really. Um, 
depends a lot on life experiences as well. Uh, so certain people might have been through a lot of life experiences where they've been very emotional um, and they've had to cope with those. Um, and I think that can can really either speed up the process of understanding emotions um, or, or not. So I think it does vary quite significantly, actually, between you could have a 12-year-old who's very emotionally intelligent, you could have a, an 18-year-old who, who, who isn't, um, and I think a lot of it depends on their background and their own individual narrative and story. Yeah, it's important to, to get to know that. The, the groups that I work with in football, I always talk to them about their the chronological ages, the year they're in, the biological age is just their physical maturity, and then there's the part of the psychological age, which is really quite hard to, to figure out if you don't understand that background. I think that's a really key point, is understand the background. Yeah, I, no, I completely agree. I think, I mean, the, the biological and chronological age, yeah, yes, they're important, but I think the psychological age is, is even more so, particularly when you're talking 12, 13, 14, you know, that may well be in the same squad, same age group, but they could almost be a year apart um, psychologically. And that particular time period is, is really important in terms of psychological development. And you could have somebody that's really mature and somebody who's, who's not. And, and it's not a reflection on them as an individual. It's their psychological age, um, their level and stage of development. So in, in terms of these things, if I bring you into the nature v. nurture debate, where, where are you on that? Because it's something that just constantly revolves and I'm really interested to get your intake from, from your position and your expertise and knowledge on, on what comes to mind on nature v. nurture. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, both are important. Um, both are probably equally as important as each other. Um, because, I mean, you can have all the skill in the world and you can be born with that skill Born, born's maybe not the right word, but you can you can have a, a core set of skills, but if you don't nurture that in a way that um, is, is based upon the environment, um, is based upon having access to appropriate facilities, good coaches, um, all of the social environment that you, you may be embedded in as well, so maybe um, your, your family will be able to take you to the training venue, you're not going to be able to nurture that environment. Um, so I think that's a real challenge that, that we need to, to talk about for sure. Is there certain areas you think that, not just in football, just in, in sports in general, on this debate that we don't maybe look at enough? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's um, an area that we, I mean, we talk about it quite a bit, but I actually don't think there's a true understanding that we need to understand both elements. So we can do all the testing of these athletes. We can find out whether they're physically appropriate for the sport. We can find out if they're psychologically appropriate for the sport. But if we don't do the, the other bit, understanding the um, the sociology of it, the, the people that are supporting them, whether or not they've accessed appropriate facilities, all of that, we, we, we're going to lose a massive element of how we can develop athletes. Do you think that maybe a is there a shift in I don't know the old fashioned word would be the class system, but is is there maybe a shift that I, for me I I'm finding that it's maybe becoming in football terms maybe a bit more middle class, a bit wealthier, certainly from the sort of higher academy standard levels. Yeah, I mean I think 
Um, and what I judge that on, from, from my point of view, is I quite often look at the cars that people drive. And mm-hmm. I'll pull in a car park um, before anyone gets there and I'll watch the cars. Or, are you finding changes and where finance is affecting things? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously football was traditionally um, the, the only the, the reason a lot of people played football was because you just needed a football and a couple of goalposts, um, which was usually t-shirts, jumpers, that type of thing. Um, and I think what we're finding probably the, the shift is more in a, a ability to access facilities, and there's a lot more facilities now that are proper football pitches and and that type of thing and I think I think there's probably still a variety of different people who who are involved in the sport but there's probably more people who are as you as you're talking about more middle class and who are, who are taking part in, in the sport not because of any other reason then there's there's more accessible facilities for them um, and certainly more more has been done to to encourage that yeah, I think the thing that always frustrates me is when you drive past an Astro and the, the gate's locked and everything's shut and it just, it always frustrates me. Although kids don't seem to go out yeah. as much as they used to, but it, it's certainly a, a frustration for myself. Um, I don't know, what what does it do when you see these sorts of things that are shut or closed or locked? Does it, does it do the same thing for you? Yeah, it frustrates me. Um, I, I think, I mean, we, we always talk about Certainly in this country, we need people to be active, we need people out and doing things. And then you put up barriers to the facilities that people need to be able to access those things. Uh, it, it frustrates me no end when I see things that are locked and shut. And I understand some of the rationale behind that, but we need to find ways to overcome some of those challenges. Yeah, definitely. So... I'm going to kind of try and shift into a bit more football focus now. So um, I want to start with culture creation and what you see as creating cultures in football and what you've seen in your experience. Yeah, I mean, culture, I think, is is crucial to anything that you will do as a sports psychologist. And and certainly the creation of culture within football for me is, is about understanding what is or what are our values as an organisation? What are our values as a team? What do we want to be known as? Um, so whether that is because of a particular style of play, because of the way we behave and the way we act, uh, because of potentially the, the the facilities that we provide, what, what is it we want to be known as um, as, as an organisation? Do we want to be known as a caring club? Do we want to be known as, as, as a club that gives everybody an opportunity to, to be the best. And I think culture and being able to drive that is is primarily down to the the organisation, the coaches, the managers, the players that are involved in that, that particular um, environment. For a sports psychologist to come in um, and work on culture, a lot of the, the roles we will take as well, is there a clear culture in place? Is there a clear set of values and beliefs and philosophy um, are there key, key metrics that we can use to assess that culture and environment um, and what we do as, as an organisation and, and it's not always the case that that is there um, so the culture then becomes about development of it um, and making sure that we, we know what, what our role and value is 
Do you think it's possible with the, the turnover in management at, currently in football to actually have a culture from a first team down through an academy? Or do you think that we maybe have to have an academy culture and then a transition one into a, a first team? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because I think you, you make a really good point about the turnover doesn't really allow you to develop a culture um, that is going to be embedded at any decent level over any sort of period of time. I mean, you look at the <clears throat> the organisations that had successful managers, really successful managers, I mean, you're talking Stanley Ferguson, you're talking Arsene Wenger, even further back, you're... Um, Bob Paisley's and, and Bill Shankly's and the likes and what they had was a culture all the way through the organisation uh, they were given the time to embed that they were given the time to to really put that in place um, and almost live by the, the words that they were saying that actually this is important uh, and I think you're, you're right that we don't have that opportunity necessarily um, because of the turnover of managers uh, within organisations and how that impacts on on youth, the youth development aspect is that you do need a separate culture. Um, you can try and embed it within the first team, but I think as soon as the first team goes, the culture then changes. So everything then needs to shift. Um, so having a separate culture, I don't think it's ideal, but more often than not, it's more stable. It's interesting. So if I was to take you to training tomorrow night and, and I, we were just talking on culture, what would you sort of step back and observe? What, what would you be looking for? And, and I'm guessing would you just engage with the coaches or would you stand back? How would you go about it? Yeah, so so for me, the observing behaviours, observing um, if, if, we, if, for example, we say that our philosophy and our values and beliefs is around how we behave on the pitch, how we interact with the referee, how we interact with each other, how we interact with the coaches. I'd be looking to go, okay, so do we interact well with the coaches? Do we communicate well? Do we speak well? Do we interact well with referees or, or um, other times where actually we, we, we become too emotionally attached and we make comments that we, we don't need to make or we don't want to make? Um, I think the, the key part about about culture is it, it's it's driven by the people in that environment. So what what they believe is important is really what you then need to, to look and observe. Um, so if they if they're talking about uh, that we want a, we want to be known as as a team that we play good football and we enjoy what we do, and you're seeing a real negative sort of connotation through training and through matches, that there's a question there about okay, is that the right culture for us that we're trying to develop or um, do we need to look at ways that we can adapt to what we need to do? And what would you then do? Would you, say, note down phrases you hear from coaches or would you note down maybe what you see from the players in terms of body language or, or output? Yeah, so 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 both really. Um, there'll certainly be times where you would, speak to coaches and listen to what they're saying and understand how they're, they're portraying that message and note down maybe what they've said or how they've said it. Um, I think the same with, with athletes, you would you'd be looking for how they're portraying that message, what, what they're saying. There may be particular incidents during training or matches that you pick up on and go, okay, there's an example of 
either doing it really well or not doing it well um, and talking people through what, what's going on at that particular moment in time. Um, you, you tend to find uh, when, when, when athletes say uh, they're, they're trying to enact or they're trying to uh, behave well and then you, you identify a point where they've perhaps not behaved in the way that they've identified they would like to, they don't often, or there's times where they don't always understand that that's happened. And it's been a reactive in the moment sort of situation. And, and even just raising that with them can be important for their understanding. It's interesting because for, for kind of my coaching point of view, I always try and look for like emotional hooks or things that pull a, a, a real emotion out of a player and then like try and analyse it. But it's, yeah. it's certainly an area that um, is at the forefront. Would you say at the moment culture seems to be a, a really important area of focus? Yeah, I think it is, and I think it's probably been the last 10, 15 years has been an area where coaches and managers, players have understood that there can be a big a big value because if we have a cultural environment that people buy into um, and, and everybody in that squad buys into it, the, the squad's much more likely to be together. The squad's much more likely to push through adversity that we talked about earlier on and have um, each other's backs if there is mistakes that we made. So in, in terms of culture and, and trying to build it, do you think that people like myself realise the power we hold as coaches or as managers? Yeah, no, I think I think a lot of coaches do. Um, I think a lot of coaches understand the, the value that they can bring to that. I think the the other side of that for me is that they maybe don't understand the negative effect that they can have um, if it goes the other way. So we talk about culture and values and we want to embed them. And it may be that actually the squad is doing really well and the, the values and beliefs are embedded. And then all of a sudden the coach will say something that will just completely change that. And it's, you go from a, a an embedded sort of value um, in culture and the coach just comes in and completely changes it and the, the athletes then become um, challenged by that. And I think that happens and, can, and has happened in the past where it, we're almost, because of something that's happened in the environment, the coach has changed completely everything about culture, environment um, and wants to do that. And then it, it almost becomes a bit of a spiral effect the athletes become a bit unaware of what's actually happening and then um, that, that can be that can be difficult for them to then recover from. Try, trying to just finish off this wee culture bit, do you think it's easier to destroy it than it is to create it? For sure, yeah. Definitely. So much easier to destroy it, yeah. And, and create, creating it takes a long time, what can take a long time. Um, I, had, <laughs> I had a situation... Um, where we were developing the culture and it took about a year and a half to really embed what we needed. The coaches spent a long time working with other coaches and myself and other sports science support staff and the athletes to develop this culture. Um, and everything seemed to be going in a positive direction. The manager left, it was all gone. So the whole culture had changed straight away. Um, and you then have to work out what the new manager wants, the new coach wants, if he wants the same thing, if he wants different things, what's his, his beliefs and philosophy and how does that match to, to what's already in place. And it can destroy it very quickly. 
And I think that, I mean, what we just discussed there about the way people communicate can destroy it really quickly because you can say, okay, we're going to, one of our key goals is communication. We're going to communicate well. And as soon as people go and are put under pressure, they start shouting and, and bawling at each other. And that can ruin that, that, that culture as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'd like to now just dig in a bit more into kind of your research in football because you, you've really focused on the transition from, from youth to, to senior. So could you just kind of explain some of the research you've done, where you've done it with and who, who you've worked with? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've I done my PhD down in Aberystwyth in Wales. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with, with a few English Premier League, Scottish Premier League clubs um, at, at the time and uh, was looking specifically at how do we support athletes who one day are in the youth team at the age of 17, 18 and then the next day they're in the senior environment and the culture changes very quickly. Um, so, I mean, the natural of any culture of youth sport is, is very facilitative, it's developmental, it's perhaps very supportive. You go into the first team and it's like you, you're competing against 35-year-old grown men who've been about a bit and they're, they're, they're not frightened to put you up in the air and all, all of that that comes with that particular environment. And how does how does somebody cope with that psychologically? I mean, there's, there's probably no other environment in the world where you go from somewhere so supported, facilitated to somewhere that's not in, in the space of a day, potentially. Um, no other job, really, that, that has that um, sort of transition. It's interesting. I like that partly the point you're making there because all, all the chats I've done with the boys that I've worked with on, on this podcast, it's always my favourite part of asking. This is what's that transition like? And you can see them shifting in their seat and it's almost like they're back in it. So what have you found when you've you've looked into these areas? What areas um, surprised you that it goes on? And, and what, do, what do you try and change from that? Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's a, there's a few things for me that have been um, really important. The, the first one is how different the experience can be for, for very different athletes. Some will experience a real... Um, a really positive transition and they'll thrive because of moving to, to senior sport. Um, others will experience a, a real negative transition, feel very lost very quickly. Um, and I think it's, I mean, both, both of those are important to understand because the athlete who moves up and is quite happy and is sailing along will probably experience bumps in the road at some point. So if they're not prepared for that, um, I'm not prepared that I see there might be times where they're dropped because there's players who have been about for, for longer and they're coming back from injury or, or whatever it might be. Um, and it's nothing to do with them. It's just about the, the culture and the environment and the manager's preference. Um, those bumps in the road, I think, are, are crucial in terms of the transition to senior sport. And uh, I think being able to cope with that is, is important. For the athlete who's on the opposite end of that, um, that was probably the story I expected most was this is really difficult this is really tough and and sure enough the, the narrative was there um, I think it I mean it's a, it's a big step up isn't it to go from <clears throat> youth football to to potentially playing against somebody like Scott Brown who's had 
four or five hundred appearances for Celtic and has been about and has has done really really well and I think that's it's it's almost having that mindset to say well do you know what you're 17 but we think you're good enough but there's a lot of people who will struggle with that that element. Some, I think sometimes the naivety of youth is the biggest bonus. I, I've talked to a few lads who are 15 and just get chucked in. And I don't think they quite realise it until maybe a few days later what it's like. But you've said that you, you see guys adjust to it really quickly. And you mentioned mindset there. What did you see in, in the boys that just adjusted to the first team? I think one of the key things is they've been through, or they've acknowledged they've been through transition previously. Um so, I mean, it's, for, for me, it's partly to do with, you know that when you're moving from under-14s to under-15s, it's a step up. Um, but not all athletes will appreciate and acknowledge that. And it's the same with going from 16 to 17, 17, 18, and then all the way through to, to kind of first-team environment. There's some athletes will go, okay, that, that transition was tough. What can I learn from that? What can I understand? And, and usually it is about the psychology of it and, um, some of the experiences they've maybe had. I think going through adversity is is one of the crucial elements as well. And we've touched, touched upon that previously. If athletes have been through difficulties, challenges, they've been able to develop their mindset and their determination to to deal with those, that can have an impact. But that's not to say that we need to put athletes through that. I think it's it's just to say that actually there's, there's potentially a a link between some of those elements that if you've had difficulties and challenges, all of a sudden when you come across another difficulty or challenge, you know how to deal with it. Um, and having a bit of life experience can, can sort of help that. But yeah, for, for sure, I mean, acknowledging and having learned from previous transition can be, can be really crucial. Did, did you see when you did your work in this area, any sort of change in demeanour or ability on the pitch? Because often the, the guys that are being pushed into the first team are the best in their group and everybody knows it. And all of a sudden yeah. being thrown into where they're probably never going to be the best. So is there yeah. things that you've seen body language wise or just anything that you sort of hit light bulb moment? Yeah, there, there certainly is a real change um, for, for a lot of the guys because they go from the big fish in the small pond to the small fish in the big pond and, and nobody else cares to some extent how good they are. Um, I think that's one of the other things for me. It's like, well, you're just one of us. You're not any better or any worse than us. You're just one of us and just get your head down and work hard. And, and you see that, you do see the change in the athletes when they're going through that process. Um, some some will, will thrive on it, as we've talked about, and they'll kind of walk in with a, a bit of a, a kind of cockiness about them. Others will, will struggle um, very quickly and become a bit um, sort of reclusive um, in the way that they they work. And I think, I mean, partly that's dependent on who they are as an individual. But I think it's also dependent on how well they're supported in that transition. Um, and sort of saying, well, look, we're not expecting, expecting you to be playing in the first team and the next couple of weeks, but what we want to do is learn from the experience and understand what you can get from this. When you're when you're watching this kind of going on, 
And you, did you spend any time watching the players going back to their own age group? So they've gone up and then did you see them going back and did you see anything on that backward step? Yeah, I, there was a few of the clubs had had that sort of system where they would move players up and then they would move them back down. So they'd maybe be in the first team, training with the first team for a couple of weeks and then they would come back down to, to the youth team. And, and some athletes really enjoyed that. Some athletes didn't. I think part of part of it for the athletes who enjoyed it was they acknowledged and they were able to realise the level and the standards they needed. Um, some of them were were close to it. Some of them were weren't far away from it at all. So that it, it gave them a bit of confidence to say, "Do you know what I can push on. I can do it at, at this particular level." Other people, it, it went the opposite way. So by the coming back down, they almost felt, "Well, am I not good enough already?" Because they were, they, it kind of gave them that mindset of, well, I've been in the environment, but now they're letting me play at youth level again. What, what's going on? Why am I not consistently up um, at the first team level? And I think that's about the message that's sent to players to say, look, actually, you're going to come up for a couple of weeks, but we're going to move you back down. It's not because you're not good enough. It's about allowing you to develop, allowing you the opportunity to go back down and know what you need to progress. Do that in a safe environment then come back up to the first two further down the line. Yeah, well, I was going to be my next, my next question on this, that me and you are standing next to each other on the pitch and um, that my role is the one when he comes back down. So when he drops back down in his own age group, what are you saying to me to keep it simple, to keep him focused, but also to energise the group he's coming back to? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the main thing with the coach in terms of what he said to the athlete is, well, the reason why he's come back down, give them the reasons. Don't don't be um, frightened to say, like, it's not because you're not good enough, it's because of these issues we want to develop and progress and we, we feel you'll be better for it. I think that's one of the biggest things with that type of approach is the communication has to be has to be spot on because if the athlete's coming back down thinking, well, I've done it for two weeks, why now am I back down? And thinking, well, I'm not good enough. Straight away, you can start to conspire and lose the lose the motivation. Um, but if they're communicated to, and and you're kind of saying to look, the reason they're back there is because we feel we can help the guys here. Feel as though you coming back in will be a, a real positive. We feel as though you can develop some things, and these are the areas we want to develop. Like just being simple, clear, concise. So we'll move it to the negative side of it because it's been all positive so far getting released the majority of these boys are going to get released unfortunately um what have you seen what areas do you think need worked on what's your thoughts on that part of it yeah i mean it's it's the hardest part of it isn't it it's um for for both coaches who are releasing athletes but also the athletes um themselves and i think that the key thing for me is how we do that process. I don't think there's any easy way to do it um, and there never will be but I think we need to appreciate that these guys have potentially for 10 years been in that organisation in that squad um, have, have progressed all the way through to potentially the verges of the first team um, and then all of a sudden they're told that they're no longer needed and it's I mean it's heartbreaking for some of them because that's what they've Based their 
identity around that's got the best of development around maybe like a school at 16 with no qualifications because they, they want to go and play football or whatever it might be and all of a sudden somebody else is externally evaluating them and saying you're not good enough um, and, and I think that is tough I think that's it's really difficult um, for them to cope with especially the people who are not expecting it um, so if there's athletes who, who are not expecting to be released and then all of a sudden they are it, it can, can really have a negative spiral especially if they don't have any people sort of lined up um, to, to replace what they're the, the hardest thing I've ever had to do is we talk about changing management and culture. I was part of a change in youth management and I was just told along, along with a coach that I know really well and I consider a friend just to go into a dressing room and just to release two age groups on the spot near the end of a season. And it, it still hurts me today. And I've made a couple more mistakes when you're, you're talking about the not communicating and not expecting it. I think it's important we we make sure that if we're going through that process, the kids have to see it coming. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think I think there's a a, re, a real element of seeing it coming. But I think the other thing for me is one of the things that I I think is so important is the communication of these are areas you can maybe develop. What can we do to help you once we've uh, you've gone through that process of releasing that thing? Um, ultimately, is I mean, if you if you just release somebody and say you're no longer good enough as an athlete, that that's one side of things. But then if you're if you're quantifying that with you're a nice person, you you've got these characteristics, these qualities, we really enjoy working with you. It, it can soften that blow a bit to sort of say, okay, they, they understand me as a person. Um, and if you're releasing a, a, a kind of an individual and you get you're not good enough. And that's all you get. It's almost like, well, but I've put my work into it for the last 10 years for you and all I'm getting is I'm not good enough. It's like, you're not treating me as a person. And I think that's it. It's hard because getting released is always going to be hard. But I think if you're able to sort of say, well, yes, we, we don't think it's good enough to make it at this level, but these are the characteristics we, we really think you're good at. Almost like getting a school report, isn't it? Yeah. You're going to get for development and it may be that there's certain things that you're not good at, but there is that you are good at, and there's areas you can maybe develop as well. So what would you kind of recommend that we maybe put in place? Because I don't think there's any way of solving the problem completely. No, I, I agree. I think there's, for, for me, there's, there's still got to be a place where those young athletes, footballers can go once they've been released to get support. And, and, it's not going to, I mean, similar to what we talked about with the positive transition, some athletes will be okay, some athletes will be fine, but there'll be others that will really, um, really struggle with it. And th- there isn't really a huge amount that, that goes on. I mean, there's a couple of organisations that provide support for like three, four, five months after athletes have been released, but whether or not that's long enough is probably questionable for some. And, and I think it's not it's not something that's uniform across the board. It is very dependent on the organisation. So I think even having that in place um, as a starting point, so whether it's support with the performance lifestyle issues, um, so getting into college, university, school, whether it's support with vocational qualifications, whether it's support with 
um, finding a new job, finding a new career path, all those sort of things are really important in addition to providing emotional support. So whether that's through sports psychology or, or um, through other mechanisms, I think it's, it's really important just to have that accessible for people. Would you say that the, the players are products over people? I think for some organisations, probably are, yeah. I think um, I can partly understand where that rationale has come from um, in the past, but I think we, we've seen the difficulty and the challenges that creates in the last few years um, and the focus now on duty of care uh, is, is a real step forward because we, we're in a position where we've seen the difficulties that like the British Cyclone have had and, and how that plays out uh, I think is, is really it's really worrying for athletes it's almost like well if you went to this environment it's going to be a tough environment and you um, you, you might be getting bullied and things like that like, that's not the message we want to be sending we want to be sending the message that yes yeah, sport's hard the elite sport's hard but there is support in place to help you um, and we can support what's going on so a couple more questions if you're you're okay with it. I know we're coming to near the end of this. So do you think the focus on winning and, and winning at maybe not winning at all costs, but having winning at the forefront has a, a shift on this transition period and then if they're seen as people or if they're seen as products? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, ultimately, elite sport is about winning, isn't it? And if you as an elite manager or an elite coach are not winning, you will lose your job. Um, so there's a real shift very quickly for, for youth players. Um, and having that mentality that actually we do need to win um, and, and win at all costs, I, I think is probably one of the key key drivers for some of that. I mean, if you think about youth, youth level coaches and yeah, winning is important, but ultimately, if they're producing five or six players for the first team, the winning aspect becomes a bit, um, a bit less of a key focus. So it's never really until they get to the first team that that winning at all costs is a, is a true driver for for certainly coaches. Um, I mean, it is there, don't get me wrong, but it's not the sole focus. One of the bigger focuses is how do we develop players for the first team. Would you would you try to to focus on the more intrinsic winning then up until a certain point, but just keep mentioning, look, at some point we're going to have to get the result. At some point we're going to have to focus on the result. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I think that's important. I think people need to learn how to win and lose, but I think they more often than not will be able to do that within a youth environment. Um, but I think the the key drivers within those youth stages has got to be about development of people. It's got to be about development of you as an athlete, yes, absolutely, but you as a, an individual person, you leave this environment a better person as a result of being in it. And, and I think, I mean, for organisations and for sports, if they're seen as an environment which provides that level of support and provides that opportunity for people to develop and be better, be better communicators, be better um, people that go out into the culture of the, the country and, and the way the society and they come across as better people, it has a positive impact on the club. Uh, it's seen in a positive light. 
Great. And I'm going to finish off on this one. So I'm, I'm going to give you a blank athlete, a blank footballer, whichever you want to choose. What you're going to program into the brain is, you know, two or three key skills to, to set a foundation for uh, a super elite athlete. Yeah, I mean, the, the first one for me is motivation. Um, they've got the motivation to, to want to push themselves. They've got the motivation to, to drive through adversity, drive through difficult times, because sport's not always big lights and um, happy times. There are challenges um, that, that are within that. So you need to have the, the motivation um, to, to deal with that. I think you need to have the ability to to come back from adversity, um, so the, the grit and determination that we talked about earlier on, um, related to uh, the kind of resilience aspect of it, um, for sure. I think that that that's really really important. And, and ultimately, um, I think you also need to have the ability to control emotion, control how you're experiencing emotion and the behaviours that you exhibit as a result. If you can't control the emotion and it's it's always overcoming you, um, the behaviours you're going to, you're going to exhibit are, are not going to be positive for the development. Brilliant. Robert, thank you so much for coming on. I've absolutely loved this and I could keep going for hours, but I don't want to keep you on here, buddy. So thank you so much for coming on. No problem at all. That's it for another episode. Thank you very much for listening. Really hope you enjoyed that. Again, I'm on Twitter at PlayTrainGrow. We'd love a tweet or a retweet. You can email me at PlayTrainGrow at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.